It's again a privilege and a marvelous one at that that we have to come together this afternoon as Brother Dennis mentioned at the outset of the announcements. And if I might add an announcement or two to that uh, set that he presented before us, part of these are my failure to have uh, informed or made note of him of these. My family and I have been invited to be a part of a vacation Bible school effort on Tuesday evening of this week. It's at the Richmond Chapel Church of Christ in Jackson County. The particular theme will also have to do with the neighborliness of Christianity. And so we're thankful for that opportunity to be with the good brethren there. And we'd certainly extend an invitation to anyone that would have opportunity to be with us that evening. Certainly that would be, uh, ex- uh, would be a, a, hopefully a good opportunity at 7 o'clock that night. And as was already mentioned, uh, beginning next Lord's Day, we will be in a gospel meeting with the Union Hill congregation just over the way here, little piece. Thankful again for those men here who will so ably and capably take care of the services as far as the Bible studies and delivering the lessons. But any of the opportunities that you have to come be with us, we certainly look forward to the opportunity of fellowshipping with you at the Union Hill Church with the brethren there. We continue tonight with a consideration of the book of Revelation. In fact, we began that series of lessons last Lord's Day evening. And on that occasion, just by way of recollection or remembrance, we had looked at some thoughts by way of introduction that would help us to understand the book in a global way a bit better. Among that listing of ideas, first, the character of literature, again, is primarily apocalyptic indicating that we must understand that the truth is presented in signs and symbols. As such, it is not a narrative in chronological order, say, like the book of Joshua or the book of Acts. But in addition to that, we quickly learned that we would do well to place the book in the setting of appreciating the vast number of Old Testament references. And quite often we will know that they will shed light on our understanding of John's usage of them in the book of Revelation. Nextly, we also noted the vast importance of understanding a bit about the history of that time. It was a day of persecution. The Roman Empire was a tyrant, and that was mighty indeed. And they persecuted Christianity severely and sorely. And these individuals to whom this book was written often were undergoing dramatically difficult trials from one day to the next, perhaps not even knowing whether they would be alive the next day. This book, thus, for them was a message of victory, knowing that as long as they remained faithful and true to the Savior Himself, that they would be victorious over Rome and any other persecuting force that may come against them. And we noted as we closed the lesson that that latter part, that latter message, is just as needful for you and me as it ever was for them. We must also know that if we too are faithful overcoming Satan, sin, and self, and thus closing this life by dying in the Lord, we too will be victorious and look forward to a home in heaven, no matter what the difficulties that this life may have had to offer. But as we begin our journey through the book, we come today to chapter number 1. As we proceed to consider it, at least at this point, it's not my opening plan to merely go through it one chapter at a time. There will be times when the text will itself allow us to do more than a chapter at a time, but at least this opening chapter so naturally sets by way of an introduction to the two chapters that follow. And thus we will begin today by looking at this opening chapter of the book of Revelation. In so doing, I would ask that you consider the first three verses with me at the outset. Revelation 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. 
These three verses might well be described as a general introduction to the entire book, not just the opening chapter. And as such, let us spend a moment and read these, and following that we will make some comments about the thrust, the focus, and power contained in these opening three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. I'd ask you to note with me the order or sequence by which this marvelous message was revealed. It consists of five steps, from God to the Son, Christ Jesus, to the angel, to John, and finally to the servants to whom he wrote with those words contained in the precious revelation of this book before us. That very idea quickly brings to our mind the thought that this is thus the Word of God. It was not John's opinion or his speculation And by the way, isn't it true that given the symbols and some of the visions he would later see, there might be some skeptics who would claim that John was hallucinating throughout it. That is not true. John expressly notes that these are the words God revealed to him by way of Christ through the angel to him, and he was given order to produce it or make it known to those seven churches of Asia. Amazingly, we notice the affirmation in verse 2 of a similar idea of that same thing. Who bear record of the Word of God, furthermore of the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is a remarkable thought then that this message, the book of Revelation, will close the curtain on divine inspiration. There are no appendices to it. This is the 66th and final book in the Holy Word of God. We can understand that this is the Word of God summing it up in total as it, as it is to be found in this book. The Word of God. We will notice a bit later in this same chapter the significance of that phrase, Word of God. But at this point, we might introduce the interesting facet and the possibility of interpretation. If you've done much study in reference to the various commentaries and other written books and articles on the book of Revelation, you will know that there are very many diverse interpretations of this book. Some who claim all of the book has long since now been fulfilled and there's nothing yet in it yet to be fulfilled. Others, on the other hand, at the vast other extreme, will say that very little of the book has yet been fulfilled. Most of it is yet to be fulfilled near the end of time. We might notice, based on a statement of this opening verse, that latter one cannot possibly be right. Notice again the reference of verse 1, things which must shortly come to pass. When John wrote this book and sent it to those seven churches of Asia, it was well understood then by them that the fulfillment of these things would very soon begin. It would not begin 2,000 years later or 3,000 years later. It would soon begin the fulfillment and the force of the nature of coming truthfully the things that were revealed. In fact, two other times in the book, similar statements to that are also made. In Revelation 22, 7, Jesus said, I come quickly. 
He wasn't stating that his second coming would be soon. Notice that's been 2,000 years now and the Lord still hasn't returned. What he meant was, in the language so often employed in Scripture, he would soon come in terms of bringing the reality of the fulfillment of the things contained in this book. And that he did. Three verses later in Revelation 22.10, we notice one more time he said, Seal not up the words of this prophecy, for the time is at hand. So very often in the Scriptures that phrase, at hand, was used to mean that something was about to happen. When Jesus preached in Matthew 4, verse 17, the kingdom is at hand. He didn't mean the kingdom was not going to be established for some 2,000 years. The kingdom was soon going to begin. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verse 2 also said the kingdom is at hand. You and I thus appreciate the fact it is a mistake if we think that all of the book of Revelation is yet some distant point in the future yet to be fulfilled. Much of it has already been fulfilled and is in the process of it. Perhaps, as we will notice later, some is yet to be fulfilled when our Savior returns a second time. To notice those things about these opening comments, perhaps one more from verse number 3. Notice the blessing with me, if you would. The blessing associated with those who read, those who keep, those who hear the words of the prophecy of this book. We see then the value and the reflection upon that value of the public reading of the Word of God. You and I, as we appreciate the place it has in our worship services, we here before the sermon on Sunday morning as well as Sunday night have a gentleman to read some text from which we will consider thoughts and remarks later in that service. The Bible in Nehemiah 8 verses 3 and 8. Noted even in the Old Testament the value and power of the public reading of the Word of God. On that occasion, they read from early morning until midday. Our services haven't yet been known to last quite that long, but notice, as they read the text of the Word of God for that length of time, the people were anxiously awaiting the explanation and the interpretation thereof, which Ezra and the other priests so beautifully provided. After the introduction is presented to us in these opening statements, I would ask that you consider with me the next section, verses 4 through 8 of Revelation chapter 1. We yet are not quite ready to jump into the main text of the book, for we notice in these verses there is yet a salutation, that is, an opening greeting presented to those to whom the book is written. Let us consider then in our reading verses 4 through 8 of Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. 
after those opening three verses, John now, as most letters are wont to do, identify the one who is writing as well as the object or the audience to whom the book is written. When you and I today compose a letter and send it through the mail, we identify in it who we're sending it to, and we also identify the person writing. Notice that John, the opening word of verse number 4, identifies then to these congregations who it is that is sending this divine inspiration and its message. This John was John the Apostle. The same one who was the brother of James, the same one who was the son of Zebedee, the same one who wrote the gospel according to John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament. We remember that he was the apostle of love, as he is sometimes called. All of that information helps us understand that this John had an important role to play then in delivering this final message of Revelation He again was the one to whom Jesus ultimately sent this message for delivery to those seven churches of Asia. And notice that that is the next message, to the seven churches which are in Asia. We noted last Lord's Day evening about the nature of some of those churches, and we shall have much more to say at our next lesson. And you will note in verse 11 that these congregations by name are mentioned or listed And when we arrive at verse number 11, we will look more carefully at the names of them and draw some other brief comments about them. But let us notice then that beginning in verse 4, three specific beings or entities are listed as being those from whom this message originally originated. First, Him which is and which was and which is to come, a reference to God Almighty, the One who is absolutely eternal, He is not bound by time. And as the psalmist said long ago in Psalm 90 verse 2, From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. But notice without skipping a beat, he says, And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. A very beautiful and yet figurative way of making reference to none other than the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits doesn't mean that this Holy Spirit is divided into seven parts. As we shall see again in a subsequent lesson, seven indicates the wholeness and completeness of His revelation being the fullness of that which God revealed to the human family. The seven spirits, that reminds us, by the way, of Isaiah 11, verse 2, where the Holy Spirit there is described in seven ways, all of them pointing us to the reality that these seven spirits take us back to the very one who was delivering that message even in the days of the Old Testament. But yet there is a third, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. We have all three elements or members of the Godhead mentioned before us as being those who originally set forth or originated this message. But it is rather impressive that Jesus is described much more fully than either the Holy Spirit or God, at least on this occasion. For again, verse 5, who is the faithful witness? Jesus was a witness of God. He confessed such in John 12, verse 49. And in addition to that, He is the first begotten of the dead, a thought plainly taught in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. Is it not there said that he was the first fruits of those begotten from the dead? And as such, it serves as the promise for the general resurrection of all of us on that great and final morning of resurrection. In addition, 
He's the prince of the kings of the earth. One of the elements then from this chapter that teaches us so amazingly, prince of the kings of the earth, there was a Caesar in Rome who was a tyrant, and at that he was a very wicked man. One of the first messages that those would have appreciated is there is a power higher than that Roman Caesar. Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is indeed king of kings and lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. In fact, two other times later in this same book, first in Revelation 17.14, later in Revelation 19.17, he will one more time be said to be king of kings and lord of lords. That would have been meaningful to those saints suffering such duress and persecution. But notice what else is said of him in verse number 5. Unto him that loved us. Oh, how the Savior loved us. So much so that in Ephesians 3.19, the love passes knowledge. It is difficult for you and me to fathom the fullness of the Savior's love for us. But yet, not only did he love us, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. What a significant statement. In fact, in the American Standard, it reads, He loosed us. And that's a past tense verb. It is not that there is a means of remission yet to take place. The Lord did it once at Calvary. He died once for all time for all men who will lovingly and obediently come to Him and have their sins cleansed by His blood. Again, what an amazing statement. As we move on into verse number 6, something more is said about the Lord. And hath made us kings. Perhaps to render that better in accordance to the Greek, He made us to be a kingdom. There are those in our world, again, who would quickly tell us that the statement of the fulfillment of the book of Revelation means there is yet to come a kingdom that will be the fulfillment of all of these things. It is significant that the text does not say He will make us a kingdom. It says He hath made it. It's already been made. It was in existence by the time John wrote. We look not for a future kingdom, yet some day to be established, which is the fulfillment of these statements. The kingdom has long since been in reality. And as we shall see all throughout this book, you and I are blessed to be a part of it today. Finally, we note, that he says in verse 6, priests. There was, of course, in the Old Testament, a specific group of people, the descendants of Aaron, who were to be the priests. But here John writes that he has given you and me opportunity and blessing, privilege to be priests. Peter expanded upon that thought, did he not, in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 to 9, where he expressly said, you and I today as Christians are priests unto God. May we never lose sight of the blessing and benefit that's ours to be so acclaimed as these priests. Notice also, as we close perhaps that screen or that particular discussion, that this kingdom as it is in existence is referred to many times in the New Testament, one of which is the 13th verse of Colossians chapter 1. Paul noted there that he was in the kingdom, the Colossians were in the kingdom, and here we notice Jesus had established that kingdom. But let us move forward and also look at some other thoughts about these four, these four verses. Notice in verse number 7, something else said about Jesus. He cometh with clouds. And we immediately rush back in our mind to the thought in Acts 1, verses 9 through 11, 
How was it that our Savior left this earth when He ascended? It says He ascended through the clouds. And on that same occasion, those two angelic beings that appeared beside the apostles said that He's coming back in the same fashion in which He left. It's no wonder then that John said He's coming with clouds. For indeed, that would meet the statement and prophecy found back there in Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. But what's more, when He comes, every eye shall see Him. The return of our Savior will not be a secretive event. There needs to be no fear that we might miss it. Rest assured, everybody will know it. It will not in any sense be a quiet, unobtrusive affair. Every eye, no matter in what country, no matter in what locale, every eye will see Him, even those who nailed His hands and pierced His side. That immediately informs us that there will be a general resurrection. Everybody, both wicked and good, will be resurrected and all shall see Him. He will come in His greatness, His majesty and might, and everyone will appreciate the greatness, grandness and glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And don't you know that on that occasion, that those who've lived in this life and have neglected Him, or those who have in fact openly opposed Him, and those who've thought that He was a myth or a fake, immediately they're going to fall on their knees and plead for mercy, and there will be none. Every eye shall see Him. In verse number 7, all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Those who have not made preparation, those who are not ready, will wail, and that greatly. And when we arrive at chapter 6 in this book, we'll get another image of how they're going to react. But for now, as we notice verse number 8, another gigantic statement about the reality of this person who is identifying himself. I am Alpha and Omega. You and I are not perhaps as familiar with the Greek language, but this is a dramatic statement from the Greek alphabet. The word alpha, or the letter alpha, is the opening letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like our letter A. The word omega, the letter omega, is the final letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like our letter Z. Jesus thus said, I am everything from A to Z. I provide all meaning to all history. If you take Jesus out of history, you have a gap that cannot be filled. I provide the sustenance, the meaning, and the framework to every aspect in all of human history. I'm the A to Z and everything in between. And thus, as Jesus identified himself in that way, how greatly we see the power of the New Testament and how meaningful that statement would have been to these who were suffering persecution at the hands of Rome. There was one greater than Rome. And all they needed to do was remain true and faithful to Him, and He'd take care of them. With these first eight verses completed, we're ready to now look more carefully at a vision presented to us for the remainder of chapter number 1. This vision was a dramatic one for John, for it was a vision of the one speaking, a vision of the revelator. We shall notice in this that Jesus is presented in a way that is so overwhelming let us, in the time we have remaining, look at verses 9 through 20 and appreciate some lessons that are to be found in these, in these verses. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. This apostle John at the time was exiled on the island of Patmos. That was a rocky island about 60 miles southwest of Ephesus in the Greek archipelago. It was a rather barren island, and notice that it was no vacation that John was experiencing. He says, I was in tribulation and I'm here for the word of God. You see, Patmos was one of those places that the Roman Empire would send people who were prisoners or unruly or people who were troublemakers. And it was there that they would be persecuted and punished. And that's where they sent John. So here he was on this island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse number 9. Notice, though, that on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, John received an incredible vision. So much so that in verse number 10 and 11, it began with John hearing a great voice behind him. And it says, the voice was as a trumpet. That little word, as, will often be very vital to our study of Revelation. It wasn't a trumpet, but it gathered his attention as if it had been a trumpet. And when we notice verse 11, the understanding that John received immediately from the voice that was as if a trumpet, he says, I am Alpha and Omega. The Lord was identifying himself to John, identifying who it was that was relaying this message. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. John, I am everything from A to Z. I am the defining moment of all things as it regards history and the meaning thereof. He immediately says, John, what you see, write in a book. Maybe as much so as any other New Testament book, the book of Revelation is a visual book. John saw these things and the Lord commanded him to write them. You and I will often find it useful to imagine or visualize some of these things that seem a bit unusual in this book. They may take on an added meaning or a better perspective for, for us. John, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. We noted 
last Lord's Day about these seven churches to point out again where they resided. They were in the ancient area of Asia Minor. All of them were in this little area right here. There were apparently many other churches in that area. For instance, we know the New Testament lists some of them. But we notice that these were especially chosen for apparently that they represented the issues that they faced, the churches of all of that area, as well as by inspiration those particular messages that will be so beneficial to you and me still today. These churches again start with Ephesus, which is over here on the coast. And up the coast a bit is Smyrna, but it's a little more inward. And finally, at the top, if you will, of this particular pinnacle is Pergamos. And then sliding down the right side, we come to Thyatira, and then Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. These seven churches of Asia, significant? Absolutely. Meaningful as we look at the various problems that they faced. But we immediately notice that the Lord wasn't finished, for in verse number 12, we notice that John turned to see who it was speaking and the nature of his appearance. And when he turned, notice who he saw. When he, ret- when he turned then to see, it was such that in verses 12 and 13, he saw immediately seven golden candlesticks. Notice already in this chapter how many times the number seven has appeared. It's not accidental. The number seven, even from early days in the Old Testament in the study of numerology, represents that which is complete, that which is whole, that which has no missing parts, that which is full, entire, and complete in its existence. Seven churches of Asia. We've already noted seven spirits of God in verse 4 and 5. And now we notice seven golden candlesticks. Perhaps tonight time would fail us to completely draw and recollect the fullness of the Old Testament candlesticks, but that is what ought to come to our mind. When God gave commandment to Moses for the construction of the Old Testament tabernacle, what was one of the pieces of furniture contained in it? It was a golden candlestick. In fact, it, together with the table of showbread and the altar of incense, were the only three pieces of furniture in the holy place. As we then read about this golden candlestick here, seven golden candlesticks, we need not wonder what that represents, for in verse 20 we are told. Verse 20 informs us that the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. We immediately appreciate the significance then of that thought. Seven golden candlesticks, seven churches... Those churches, as they dwell in the light of God's Word, would then represent and show that light into all that are around, and thus that causes us to think of the power of a candlestick, how that it sheds forth light to a given area or region. Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How often are we commanded to remain as Christians in the glorious light of God's Word? Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17 are good examples of that thought. I listed one old, other Old Testament reference that seems to be significant. In Zechariah chapter 4, near the end of the Old Testament, in that particular place, Zechariah saw a vision that had in it a golden candlestick. 
And on that occasion, it represented the successfulness that had to do with the rebuilding of the temple in that time and the work of God as it was redone after the Babylonian captivity. Here, seven golden candlesticks represent then the nature of these churches and the goodness that they were able to expand and to extend by virtue of their dwelling in the light of God's Word. But that isn't all. For notice what else he saw in verse 13. There was something or someone in the midst of those golden candlesticks. Verse 13, one likened to the Son of Man. Another glaring reference, isn't it? It is so significant. Here are churches as if on the periphery and right in the middle, like the hub of a wheel, the axle, if you will, is one likened to the Son of Man. We aren't left long to wonder who that was. How often did Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? I've listed some of the scriptures for your consideration, one of which in Matthew 12, verse 40, when he noted, for instance, that the Son of Man would rise on the third day, he obviously was referring to himself. And what's more, in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18, when Jesus made reference there to, Whom say ye that the Son of Man is? Well, He was the one speaking to them, and He was the one asking for the references of the common people. We learn thus an amazing fact. The Lord was in the midst of His churches. That indicates that His knowledge of them, not only His knowledge, but His preservation, as long as they would remain tied to Him like the spokes on a wheel. In fact, that vision of a wheel together with its axle and spokes should often come to our mind as we revisit the unity that Christ has with His churches. We often are thankful for the fact that He's among us as even we are gathered to worship. And in fact, the New Testament so much states that. The Lord was in the midst of His churches. Wouldn't that have been very comforting to these who were suffering such persecution? Oh, it's true, there may be an emperor in Rome who opposes us, but there's one here in our midst who is more powerful than he. Christ Jesus in our midst. That's one great lesson they ought to have taken out of this opening chapter of the book of Revelation. But he is described more fully in verses 13 and following. Notice first, a garment down to his foot. Gird about the paps with this golden girdle. Furthermore, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. That clothing immediately represented the power latent in the nature of Christ. A highly honored robe is what's described, and golden in parts at that. It is significant that seems to be the garb immediately related to a judge. It doesn't really match the garb that a priest would wear, but it does match what a judge would. And thus Jesus is indicating that there will come a time judgment's going to come on Rome, including that emperor, and they will give answer to the means that they have used to persecute my cause and my people. Notice how that thought continues. Verse 14, His head and his hairs were white like wool. The Lord's judgment will be fair, equitable, and right. Notice that white hair all throughout the Proverbs indicated wisdom. The one who is sufficiently able by virtue of experience or otherwise to testify and act according to that which is right. The Lord's judgment will always be what's right. 
Was it not stated even of God in a rhetorical way in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course he will, y'all. But furthermore, verse 14, His eyes as a flame of fire, indicating the penetrating character of that which the Lord knows. You and I are not able to hide anything from Him. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. And isn't it true in Hebrews 4.13? Indeed, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Christ Jesus knew the circumstances of those seven churches, and He knows our circumstance at Pippin too. He knows the works in which we're involved. He knows if we are earnest and fervent in that work or if we're only pretending to be. In fact, that'll be a part of the lesson for two weeks from this evening as we look at his specific word to some of those seven churches. But as we rapidly move to the close of that chapter, we learn something other that's very, very dramatic. In addition to the way in which he's clothed, a monumental statement is to be found in verse number 15. And in that verse, consider the following with me. His feet likened to fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Immediately to our mind should come an Old Testament reference from Daniel chapter 3. There were three of Daniel's friends who were cast into a fiery furnace. And once cast in, what did King Nebuchadnezzar see? As he looked into the furnace, he saw the three, but in his own words he said, I see a fourth not like or like unto a son of man. Immediately to these saints who are enduring such affliction and such trial and such oppression, perhaps even death, here's one in their midst who was with those three Hebrews in the fiery furnace centuries earlier. He would be with them in their trials. He would be there to comfort, strengthen, provide that which they needed to be victorious and to overcome. The book of Revelation is a book of victory. And notice quickly then in verses 15 and following that he had something in his right hand. In his right hand, seven stars. We again are not left to wonder what that represents. For in verse 20, we are told that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. In other words, the messengers that would bring forth the ideas of these messages to them from the very pen or information by John. And as all of this was provided and prescribed to him, isn't it amazing that the countenance of this one, in verse 16, was as the sun shineth at his strength. We are again asked, perhaps by way of reference, to think about that scene when on the road to Damascus a bright light shone around Paul in Acts chapter 9, and the Lord spoke to him out of that light. And wasn't it true on the Mount of Transfiguration that Jesus was transfigured and became brighter than the sun in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 5? Time and again, these would have been so meaningful to those first century saints as they represented the power of Jesus in their midst who was now giving them a message that they needed to overcome the persecutions that they faced. Verse 17 informs us that When John perceived all of this, it says he fell as dead. He fell as one prostrate and virtually lifeless given the magnificent nature of what he had just seen. However, Jesus, using his right hand, touched him and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
that reiterates what he'd said in verse 11. And he goes on to say in verse 18, which was the text that was read in our hearing earlier tonight, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. What would that statement have meant to that Christian who perhaps would die for the cause of Christ at the hands of a Roman persecutor? And that happened very often. Jesus is saying, recall, I died for you, but I am now alive forevermore, and so too will you be if you remain faithful to me. If you will hold tightly to the cause and the victory prescribed in me, you too, though you may lose your physical life, you'll gain an eternity with me in heaven. What a message of triumphant victory that they had. And as verse 18 closes, Christ Jesus has the keys of hell and of death. The King James rendering is not the best on that occasion. Perhaps it would be better to say that the Lord Jesus has the keys of death and of Hades. Indeed, Jesus stated that even the gates of hell would not prevail against His church in Matthew sixteen eighteen. And isn't it true that He, as we close this book later in chapter 21 and 22, we'll find that Hades will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Those precious saints shall be brought out to enjoy an eternity in heaven with Him. Oh, indeed, Christ Jesus has the keys of both those things. And the chapter rapidly concludes in verses 19 and 20. In verse 19, one more time, John is told, Write what you have seen, and furthermore, the things which are, that is, the circumstances as they then existed, and furthermore, the things which shall be hereafter. Three different references to time, past tense, present tense, future tense, and Revelation will deal with all of it in one way or another. The things that John had seen is what he would then write. The next two chapters will be the things which are. The next chapters from 4 on to 22 will be the things which shall be. And thus we notice that the book is in some sense divided by way of outline in that very verse. Revelation 1 verse 19. In verse 20 we discussed a bit earlier as it sheds light on the meaning of the seven candlesticks as well as the reality of the other parts of this chapter. Having made this statement, our time has about passed us by tonight, but might we summarize at least some of the major thoughts? What a great blessing it is to consider the book of Revelation. That blessing is pronounced in verse 3 of this opening chapter. And not only that, notice the grandness as presented that John was told to write what he saw. And as you and I then read what he wrote, we shall be able to see what he saw. As that chapter then closes, one of the final remarks, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. You and I in our life are living it in a very vain way if we do not bow before the Alpha and the Omega. Our life will have no ultimate meaning if we don't tie on to Him. Our life, when we reach its conclusion, it will be, have been found empty and vain if the Lord did not fill it with meaning. Is your life then filled with meaning tonight because you're a Christian and thankful and happy of that fact? If you're not a Christian tonight, don't delay any longer. Don't hesitate. It's too dangerous. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27.1 This evening, if you need to render obedience initially to the cause of Christ, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Come before Him and make confession that He is the only begotten Son of God. 
and then be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you have done that at some point in your life, but have lost sight of the victory that is in Christ and the fact that He is the Alpha and the Omega, come back to Him even now. Come back while there is yet time and opportunity. Brother Harold has chosen the hymn of encouragement. As we stand and sing that in just a moment, think seriously upon your eternal condition. Are you prepared to meet the Lord in judgment? He is the Alpha and the Omega. If you need to come, will you not do that even now?